0: Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 213 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? i'm doing good how are you michael i'm doing well thank you so how was your valentine's day it was absolutely wonderful uh, uh,
1: nice meal of taco bell and getting mm-hmm. to bed early with a little bit of the olympics thrown in as well too
0: so. oh good i thought i heard on the news that taco bell had some special menu or something some special item for valentine's day
1: it, it, I mean it might have, but I went with uh I, I went with you know a healthy meal of one of their basic i I don't call them junk boxes normally, but it's it i after I eat them, I call them junk boxes, one of the ones that's filled with like a chalupa, a taco and a beefy five layer burrito. I mean it's it's essentially what it is. It's like we'll take some of the cheapest items, throw them all in a box. Slap a $5 <laughs> price tag on it, and you'll be full and full of sodium. And uh, it gets me every time. But it was that's, delicious. And, that's
0: you know, a lot.
1: I, it is a so, lot. But, you know, I combined that with a little bit of bobsled, a little bit of uh, women's
0: slope-style skiing. It was, what a good night. What a good night. Good. Well, good. That's wonderful. And I thought it was very romantic that that on Valentine's Day, Disney let us know that Han and Leia spent their honeymoon on board the Galactic Star Cruiser, the Halcyon. What, that, that was just nice. So that that means, Craig, if you ever um, do have an opportunity to go on the Halcyon, you you could stay in the room where Kylo Ren was conceived. Yeah, it's it's potential. I I knew something
1: like this was coming <laughs> because during Destination D twenty three during that Galaxy's Edge panel, they, like, awkwardly went out of the way to say which of the Star Wars characters from, like, the original trilogy that boarded the Halcyon at some point. And so, like, it felt like they were getting ready to be like, some point in time, we're going to release a comic or a book that was about characters that we know on the Halcyon. And it's, like, it's slowly starting to get closer to just, like, one day there will be full-blown media all about it all about the galactic star cruiser and if it's anything like the media that's been done on galaxy's edge it's not gonna be great but <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I started, well i, I read didn't.
1: both of the books and i read the comics on galaxy's edge and i enjoy it as a place but I don't need Italians. I don't. I don't need extra specials. But I haven't played the VR game about Galaxy's Edge, so I maybe that's the definitive look at Galaxy's Edge. But I can't oh, wait for the wow. VR version of Galactic Star Cruiser, where you just get to watch a lady sing at you while you sit in a stateroom somewhere. Oh, well,
0: and I'm sure you could play the uh, the um, lightsaber, you know, game as well on that. I think you've already been able to do that
1: for a long time.
0: Oh, really? I have no idea. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I've seen people, at least on social media, post these videos where they're like holding a VR thing and using a lightsaber. So I think, I think that's already been available, but. uh, Oh, okay.
0: Probably it's probably the same cane they have on the Halcyon. So
1: (laughs) we just have to wait and see.
0: Yeah. Look forward to it. Okay. All right, well, this week we are returning to our exploration of the history of Epcot Center with a look at the World of Motion Pavilion. And this pavilion took guests through a humorous tour of transportation, and the attraction was designed by Imagineer Mark Davis, who may be best known for his work on Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, Country Bear Jamboree*, and The Haunted Mansion, and Disney animator Ward Kimball, best known for creating some of Walt Disney's most memorable characters, like Chimney Cricket, Pecos Bill, Lucifer the Cat, the Cheshire Cat, and the Mad Hatter. So, um, Craig, did you have an opportunity to go on the World of Motion
1: i did i was able to experience it uh, at least in 1992 and 1994 so i i can say i definitely did it twice i don't know how many times we went on it each time probably a good amount i remember going on the epcot attractions quite a bit uh just because you know with 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 how epcot was with being a kid you know it was a lot of journey into imagination and we definitely did food rocks a lot and spaceship earth and horizons so like the actual attractions that were uh more lighthearted and fun we made sure to do those a lot and something like mm-hmm. something like universe of energy it was you know we we'd do that once but not really worth uh <laughs> repeat rides on it so uh my my memories of it are a little bit uh more faded because I was the last time I would have went on it, I was only seven years old. And so I can remember like when I watch the the videos of the ride on YouTube, like I can remember them all. And I, I can remember the feeling of being on it, but it's not as vivid as other attractions were for me.
0: I think the first time I went on it was in nineteen eighty nine when Carol and I um, you know, first went on it. And then we took our children on it a few times before it closed. And I doubt our children even remember going on it. But, um, but I enjoyed it. I, I liked these, um, large attractions, spectacular attractions that were at Epcot during this era. But, um, this pavilion had its roots in the 1964 65 New York World's Fair. And even in Walt Disney's original concept for EPCOT, the environmental prototype community of tomorrow. And we've discussed Walt's plans for EPCOT, the city in previous episodes of Connecting with Walt. And Walt's vision for EPCOT was a reinvention of modern urban planning that would work to resolve many of the issues that continue to plague city planners and governments. And transportation was the cornerstone of Walt's plan for EPCOT. The few highways and roads that would be relegated um, to lower levels of the city and transportation at the pedestrian level would be a series of interconnected monorail and people mover lines, as we discussed in previous episodes. After Walt's passing, his original plan for Epcot was dropped. And in the late 1970s, under pressure from the media and the Florida government, Disney CEO Card Walker proposed a new concept for Epcot that would be a second theme park incorporating Walt's ideals of futurism and the power of American industry. But it would be a permanent World's Fair showcasing innovation. And transportation would be at the core of this park with a new monorail loop leading to the park and a pavilion dedicated to transportation. By 1978, Wet Imagineering had designed a model of the pavilion that was close to what would ultimately be constructed and it drew much inspiration from the Ford Magic Skyway Pavilion they had designed for the 1964-65 New York World's Fair. The upper portion of the circular building would house what was being called the History of Transportation ride. There was also an exterior portion of the track, similar to Ford's Magic Skyway, And the design of the show building would go through changes, but the general layout of the attraction would remain pretty much the same. From the beginning, the plan was for each of the park's pavilions to be paid by sponsoring corporations, who would pay for development, construction, and maintenance in exchange for having their brand, logo, and message appear on the pavilion's exterior and throughout its interior. At the time... There were three big automakers in the United States, Ford, Chrysler, and General Motors. And in 1976, General Motors invited Disney representatives to their Milford Proving Grounds in Michigan, where the Imagineers saw the test track, where new car concepts were tested in a variety of terrains and conditions. And in my research, I read that this invitation happened because they had a chance meeting with Bob Gurr and uh, and they so through him they arranged this meeting and this visit enabled disney to eventually meet with the general motors executives to discuss sponsorship of the transportation pavilion now at the 6364 world's fair the general motors futurama pavilion was rated number 1 in guest surveys with the disney pavilions coming in second third fourth and fifth So General Motors was eager to sign on as a sponsor of the new theme park and edge out its two competitors, Ford and Chrysler, from sponsorship. So in 1977, General Motors signed an agreement to sponsor the transportation Pavilion. Based on their first visit to the Milford Proving Grounds, Imagineers discussed the idea of an attraction based on the rigorous tests GM put their new vehicles through. Doesn't that sound a little familiar, Craig? I mean, it doesn't sound familiar to me at all. I've never had any experience with a training facility of any sorts. <laughs> so so isn't it funny how... Uh, How ideas get uh, resurrected as time goes on. That's wild to me, actually. Mm -hmm. Just how close, how close. Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to, throughout this episode, we're going to find other uh, inspirations for what would ultimately replace World of Motion in here. Um, As the attractions for the other pavilions were developed, this idea was dropped. In favor of a historical transportation attraction, and Imagineer Claude Coates created an initial concept for a transportation attraction and presented it to GM in 1978. Supposedly, GM's representatives felt the concept lacked charm and humor. I heard the word stoic was um, sort of passed around, and and they requested that Disney come up with something a little more Disney. So Mark Davis, who had recently retired, was invited to return to insert his brand of humor and gags throughout the attraction, and Mark and Claude had successfully worked together on Pirates of the Caribbean and Haunted Mansion, and it was hoped their success in creating popular classic attractions would continue with this project. So Mark created dozens of show scene sketches for the attraction, and Many so uh show scenes for the attraction were created from Mark's sketches without revision. Now Ward Kimball was also brought on to the attraction and and although most of the attraction's humor is attributed to Mark, Ward did insert his brand of humor in a couple of scenes such as the world's first traffic jam scene, which is probably the most iconic scene. Um Out of this pavilion, it's the one that I think people probably remember the most. Um, Now, at first, Ward was credited with providing the bulk of the pavilion's humor, and was responsible for moving the attraction along from concept design to installation to execution. And a lot of this, Ward also um, got was got a lot of the credit because Ward just knew how to work PR and mark was much more reserved and but however in more recent years mark's work on the pavilion has been discovered and brought to light publicly in books and articles and also it's been and it was also suggested that ward worked more as a consultant on the project and that mark did a, a bulk of the work on the pavilion now this pavilion was huge. The world of motion so, um, show space was built within a circular show building 65 feet tall and 322 feet in diameter. And the pavilion exterior was designed to project a futuristic theme covered with a sleek uh, stainless steel curtain wall. And the show space of the attraction was in an elevated ring built around a hollow central core on the second level that housed the show scenes and within this central core was a 60-foot-tall space that housed the finale of the attraction that was called the center core. The lower level of the pavilion contained the queue, the load and unload areas, and the trans center, which of course meant transportation center. The attraction featured a 1,749-foot omnimover ride system. So after proving to be successful in Disneyland's journey through inner space and in the Haunted Mansion, the Omnimover system would be used in many of Epcot Center's attractions. The Omnimovers carried 3,240 riders per hour on a 14.5 minute journey through 31 show scenes that included 16 full-size vehicles, 180 animatronics including 73 animals, and 3,375 props. So this was huge. <laughs> um, yeah, a wedge, it yeah, it, it was massive. And really, um, th- 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 this is probably one of the largest of the Epcot Center shows.
1: Yeah, and I mean, if you think about it in terms of test track, think about the size of the cars and how much ground they're covering – in inside, not, not including outside, just, just inside. Think about how much ground they cover, especially when you start thinking of, okay, well, you have the, you have the ramp up and then you have the takeoff and the braking and seeing how that all works. And then the winding section around and before you even go outside. So just, just considering the speed that it's moving at, like mm-hmm. you can tell right there it's massive. And Mm -hmm. I've walked every inch of Test Track, and I can tell you that pavilion is just so large.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And when you think of in this era, how many riders per hour, all of these attractions took, you know, 3,240 for the Omnimovers. And, And if you remember back, how many Universe of Energy took through. And, uh, you know, all of these were huge, what people, we would call people eaters. And then as these attractions were replaced, they, um, or refurbished, like even Journey to Imagination, I think it was an 11 minute attraction that got almost cut in half. And all of these, all the attractions were, um, as they were replaced, were shortened, and carried less people through. So, which contributed to, you know, longer lines, uh, you know, in the park. Yep. So, so um, a wedge removed from the front of the round pavilion formed a covered portico, which served as an overflow space for the queue. And above the extended queue area, the ride vehicles would make a swooping spiral from the loading area, go around a mirrored column, then head back into the show building and enter the first show seat. So guests entered the portico space under the suspended ride vehicle path, then turned right to enter the queue inside the building. And the queue was made up of a series of switchbacks that went up to a speed ramp to the moving Omnimover platform where they would board the ride vehicles. And although there was a space on the first level for a pre show exhibit, GM never used this space. It would be um, walled off for the life of this pavilion. All GM exhibits were in the post show Trance Center area. Whilst in the queue, guests heard different orchestral versions of the attraction's theme song, It's Fun to Be Free. This was written by Exotencio and Buddy Baker with symphonic, jazz, swing, and country themes. I think they even had a kazoo version in this, along with ambient sounds of planes, cars, and trains. Now, there were two separate and unique 15-minute loops, one for the outside cue and another for the inside cue. And the inside cue is the one that had the um, ambient sounds of planes, cars, and trains, as well as these music loops. And this would suggest that Imagineers anticipated there would be up to a 30 minute wait time for the attraction. And and again, this is another, you know, it, it's just so another example of how sad it is that like this 30 minute loop isn't available, you know, on streaming or on yeah. a CD or something like that. So many you know. people out there who would love to have it. Oh, I know. Well, and especially with uh, as we were talking Prior to the show, the fortieth anniversary of Epcot Center is coming up. Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a large album available of all this, you know, the music of the um, of the old attractions as well as the new attractions? You know, but uh, yeah. but since they didn't do that for the Magic Kingdom, I can't imagine we're <laughs> going to see anything like that for Epcot no no it, it would have already had to been in the works for quite a
1: bit so i think yeah. unfortunately we need we need a fan that somehow has access to all this music and and does it on their own which i maybe maybe
0: it exists somewhere out there in the internet but i, I would Some like of an it,
1: official release
0: i would too and you know there's a market for it because look as i always talk about look at that wonderful set they released for Disneyland's 50th anniversary yep. that sold out and it was going on ebay for crazy amounts of money and that's one of the most prized you know, sets in my, my Disney collection, audio collection. And um, so the market is out there for it. I just don't know why they don't do it. Yeah, so.
1: Never will understand it. Never. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> I know. And we'll keep saying this every time. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> um, now, the ride vehicles are blue pod like vehicles with. Um, with two rows that could hold up to, or three rows, actually, that could hold up to um, three guests in each row. And each chain was made up of three vehicles, and each vehicle was balanced on a central support column, allowing them to move independently from the rest of the vehicles in the chain. Usually, 141 vehicles were in operation with four spare vehicles available to um, swap out for maintenance, After guests boarded the vehicles, they would exit the building into the open portico 12 feet above the ground, and they would circle a mirrored column in the middle of the space and then spiral up towards the first show scene. And this loop transported the vehicles an additional 24 feet above the loading area and provided some spectacular views of the park, the surrounding pavilions, and Spaceship Earth. The attraction show scenes each cover transportation through the ages, starting with with the use of feet (laughs) to the first (laughs) uh, traffic jam. And each show scene would have humorous sight gags, along with uh, serious narrations provided by well-known radio and television celebrity Gary Owens. Uh, My generation probably remembers him as uh, the announcer on the television show Laugh-In um but some 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 of our listeners might remember him as the voice of Space Ghost the irreverent humor gave world emotion a very different vibe compared to the other pavilions which came across very seriously Um, Besides the humorous set, several scenes were highlighted with projection screens. This was one of the first signs of the shift the Imagineers would make towards screen technology for future attractions.
1: Yeah, but not not on the same level. No. But, I mean, obviously, the, the ground was laid. But, I mean, look at Test Track coming right after. It didn't. It didn't even embrace uh, screens in, in the same way at all. So it's not like it was set in stone, but it did. It, it was another proof of what could be used to make the right. attractions
0: better. And they were more background attractions with uh, sometimes the audio animatronic figures almost interacting
1: yeah.
0: with those background scenes. Yeah, and all that. So the projections are more to enhance. Um, the the different scenarios the the tableaus that were being presented rather than more modern ones where the projection screens are the attraction yep yep so. So something guests would notice was the vastness of the building, like you were saying, Craig. Unlike the other pavilion attractions in which scenes flowed seamlessly from one to another, there was a large amount of empty show space between the scenes, above the scenes and between the vehicles and the sets. And the large footprint of the pavilion, along with declining numbers as time went on, may have hastened the end of the pavilion. So now let's board our Omnimover and travel through the world of motion. So we begin our exploration in ancient times. And the first scene guests will witness is a group of cave people blowing on their glowing red feet to cool them off after they had used them as a means of transportation. And you actually see glowing footprints, like on the cave walls and floors and all that. Um Animal noises can be heard from the surrounding caves, suggesting this may not be the best place to take shelter. Now, these audio-animatronic figures are cartoonish rather than realistic figures. It reminds me of the figures that were in the Ford's A Magic Skyway, if you've ever seen videos of that. Mm -hmm. Um, The next scene we see, uh, our narrator tells us, is our first safe highway, Water I I guess the narrator didn't know that boats sink. Um, an Egyptian boy is seen on a reed raft and in the papyrus swamp where a Nile crocodile lurks ominously and projected, uh, there are projected white images of various boats such as, um, canoes, rafts, and Viking ships. And these are seen against, um, a black background. Um, the next scene takes us through our attempts to domesticate animals. And our narrator tells us on land, our animal friends give us new freedom and we, te- and we test drive new models. And we see various animals against a palm tree background of Africa. There's caricatures of a zebra, an ostrich, an ox, an elephant, and a camel. These are seen trying to be ridden by people with varying degrees of success success. A man with a crystal ball is seen on a flying carpet. Another man with a a very heavily burdened loaded up donkey is trying to make a deal with an innkeeper. Uh, A man with an overloaded zebra is stuck behind a man holding up the line at a toll booth. And in this scene, we hear the first of 32 versions of It's Fun to be Free. That will be heard throughout the attraction. And I I think because there were so many versions, there's no one definitive version of It's Fun to be Free that um, stick with people.
1: And and no, you basically just have to listen to the little, what, two and a half minute version that they released on the the official soundtrack releases and just kind of use that amalgamation of the different versions of it together as the
0: definitive version. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now, then the wheel is invented in the next scene as the choral version of it's fun to be free is heard. We see an ancient Babylonian royal court where the round wheel is selected whilst the square, pentagon, and triangle-shaped wheels are rejected by the guard. There's projections of various wheeled vehicles that can be seen, including an Egyptian chariot, a Greek chariot, and a Chinese rickshaw, and we transition to a Roman used chariot lot with markdown prices in Roman numerals. And we also see a giggly woman with her new transportation purchase, a, a rather unhappy male centaur. And then we move on to the Age of Discovery and the Renaissance. So our narrator then tells us, With proud new ships, we sailed forth in search of new worlds, undaunted by age-old myths and silly superstitions. And here we see um, a large projected map with sailing ships being blown by winds across the Atlantic and off the edge of the world. And from the water below, we see the humps of a sea serpent rising up till we see his head peering into the telescope of a sailor on board a ship looking back at the sea serpent. We then enter the age of the Renaissance, And great minds are turning from works of art to flights of fancy, our narrator tells us, as we enter the workshop of Leonardo da Vinci, and we see the model for the Mona Lisa waiting impatiently, tapping her foot as she waits for her portrait to be finished, whilst Leonardo da Vinci works on one of his flying machines with his assistant. We then move forward several years and see a man in a powdered wig and a hot air balloon with pigs, goats, and chickets, chickens. And unfortunately for him, his balloon has become snagged in a clothesline. Now we are on to... The, yeah, I'm not too sure what's going on there. And I think this one, this scene takes place in London.
1: So Yeah, I, I was going to say, too, uh, I think these three scenes in a row are the ones that you know even though i don't have a ton of memories uh these ones all stick out i mean obviously the sea serpent has become mm-hmm. famous beyond it all but also da vinci and the flying machine and and, and uh, it, it just, everything about those moments just works so well. And actually, The mm-hmm. Sea Serpent is one of the only vinyl nations that I still have in my possession from when they did like a, a throwback series at one point. So, uh, oh, really? Huh. Yeah. A little reminder of a ride that I didn't work on, but worked on its predecessor, its sequel. Yeah. <laughs> so,
0: well, The Sea Serpent ended up at Disney California Adventure. After this ride closed. so But we will talk about that later (laughs) when we talk about test track. So so now we are on to the age of steam power. So here we see a full-size steam-powered stagecoach being blocked on a bridge by an angry bull. The engineer blows his horn in an attempt to get the bull to move on, but this further angers the bull, causing him to blow steam from his nostrils. Other steam-powered vehicles are seen projected in the background with sounds of horns and bells. And from hot air to the power of steam, now nothing stands in the way of progress on the open road, states our narrator. Great Boilers of steam change our sails to paddle wheels," uh, he continues, "and we are now on the Mississippi River, where a boy playing the banjo and a boy fishing are seen, and we see a steamboat being loaded with passengers and cargo, and a man struggling to get his stubborn donkey on board. There's a lot of scenes of a man versus animal in this <laughs> this I mean, attraction.
1: It's a tale as old as time.
0: Yes, it is. So um, we then head west of the Mississippi where we see settlers with wagons in a circle fighting off an attack and attacking the wagoner projections of Indians on horseback. Still in the West, our narrator tells us that another kind of horse arrives, a steam-powered iron horse, bringing fast and dependable safe travel to the new frontier. So we see the iron horse, a train, being held up by a gang of outlaws taking the passengers' valuables, and they're also tormenting the, the poor conductor there, too. Our next form of transportation are bicycles and automobiles as we travel to the peaceful countryside. And our narrator comments, what more romantic way to enjoy it than with that infallible combination of man and machine, the bicycle. So we see many people riding bikes, including a man who is off his bike and up on a fence trying to ward off the dog that has been chasing him. We see another man who has crashed into a mud wallow and is surrounded by pigs. Uh, And I believe his young lady companion is um, finding great amusement in this. And then there's a man on a unicycle. Um, He's seen there as well. And there's various types of bicycles are seen in projections. Our narrator then introduces the automobile by saying... uh, The call of the open road brings us a new wonder, a carriage without a horse. Yes, with the horseless carriage, we thunder full speed into the 20th century. So we see this horseless carriage, the automobile, and a mechanic is seen cranking the engine of an auto in a garage. Uh, Another confused man is raising and lowering his auto's canopy. A horse is nearby watching. Uh, with amusement um black and white footage of autos on a sheet on a street is projected in the background, and the idea behind this scene is that automobiles cause traffic and that brings us to probably the best remembered scene out of this the world's first traffic jam around the year nineteen ten So at a busy street corner, a horse-drawn cart carrying chickens and produce has crashed and blocked an ice truck, a double-decker bus, and a red automobile. The scattered chickens are clucking and the produce is rolling on the ground. A bewildered man pops his head out, out of a manhole in the center of all this mayhem. And the drivers of the vehicles are honking and shouting at each other in frustration. So we then move on to the wide open spaces with Sunday drives and airplanes. And our narrator introduces us to our newest tradition, the Sunday drive. Now we quickly get away from it all to the beautiful, carefree countryside. So we see people out enjoying the countryside. There's projections of automobile joyriders along with biplanes in the sky. Um, a patrol officer on a motorcycle is hiding behind a billboard waiting for speeders. Now, various types of airplanes are seen in white, projected on black. And a family has driven to an air show and they are watching all this. A glamorous barnstormer pilot and his lady friend are seen next to a biplane in a field. And another lady is taking their photo. Um, In the back, projections of other planes are doing tricks, and our narrator comments, now the sky's the limit. As progress moves on, projected footage of more planes are seen along with freeways, race cars, surfboards, and the goofy short Freeway Phobia. People in vintage autos from the 1930s to the 1960s are seen along with projections driving all around the world, including a family driving to Walt Disney World. And the little boy in the car hanging his head out the window is wearing a Mickey Mouse hat, of course. So wide open spaces is how you could define this area of the attraction as the scenes become less grand and farther apart from each other. In between these scenes, full-size vehicles illuminated with spotlights or smaller show scenes in blackness are all that is visible between the larger show scenes. We then enter three speed rooms with a full wraparound projection surrounding our vehicles. The effect of the scene wrapping over and around the vehicles make it seem as if we're zooming down a country road, speeding through a swamp in an airboat, or in a bobsled, or speeding on a surfboard and in other vehicles. And to help make the illusion of speed, um, hidden fans blow air onto our vehicles. And light flies past, making it seem like we are traveling faster and faster. The first two curved tunnels feature 70 millimeter clips of a toboggan run, white water rafting, and a coral reef. And the second room has more abstract imagery with swirling lights, white circles zooming all around with an endless field of white clouds rushing past. And the final tunnel features computer-generated graphics of outer space travel and stars, and projections of grids are seen as we enter center core. And center core is the 60-foot-high cylindrical core of the pavilion, and in the centerpiece of the vast black room of Centercore is a six-story-tall model city of the future. So lit roads and highways with futuristic vehicles curve around these tall skyscrapers, and our ride vehicles circle the scene for 340 degrees. And as we descend down back to the lower level of the p- pavilion, we enter a mirrored tunnel, and utilizing the Pepper Ghosts effect, we see ourselves sitting in futuristic bubble cars. So after our vehicles enter the unloading area, our narrator tells us, Ladies and gentlemen, General Motors now invites you to share the challenge of the future. We need you to help us shape tomorrow's mobility. Just ahead is General Motors' exciting Trans Center. Join us behind the scenes where we are working to ensure that tomorrow's world will continue to be a world of motion. So Craig, what did you think of your ride through the world of motion? I enjoyed this little uh,
1: audio ride that we took through it there, and I always mm-hmm. remembered enjoying this attraction. Um, you know maybe maybe I'm misremembering it, but I feel like I actually liked World of Motion, like number two right after uh, right after journey into imagination. Because, obviously, mm-hmm. as a kid, that's that's what you would kind of latch on to. And, like, I, I liked Spaceship Earth, but it was more the idea of, like, what you're really all the way up in that ball? Like, that's that's incredible. How does that happen? But uh, a lot of the scenes of World of Motion are just plain fun. And, you know, it's it really did kind of... It told a story without taking itself too seriously. Mm-hmm. And... So it was it was good for all ages in that way, and uh, uh, gosh, I, I wish I just had better memories of it. I wish I was a little bit older because I think I would I would look back on it even more fondly, uh, especially considering I got to work at Test track and you know it just it, it felt like felt like the legacy was just as important as as the current attraction that I was working at.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I think as time went on, I think what might have thrown people off was the fact that the narration was fairly straightforward and, and serious. And then the, the scenes were humorous. And I think people had, um, they had a hard time with that. At, at least I think some people did. And I think that might have, um, maybe reduced, um, guest appreciation of this attraction as the decades sort of wore on
1: yeah that so. makes
0: sense and again mm-hmm. it's, it's a lot harder for
1: me to really grip onto that as a kid because it still was just you know it was it was more than you could ever expect there's nowhere else where you were getting that so mm-hmm. i don't think a lot of those issues really struck me as a child but yeah uh, understandable understandable
0: yeah, I think just what got what impressed me the first time I went to Epcot was just the sheer magnitude. Uh, I mean, of these pavilions, they were so epic. Journey to Imagination, the original universe of energy with these huge dinosaurs and and this and the 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 long story that was being told, and then Horizons, which was an epic storytelling adventure world of motion these are attractions like nothing disney had created i mean these were experiences unlike anything in the magic kingdom or at disneyland um i i just think of the the future world of this era it i just think of it as being epic you know the, the the huge aquarium at the living seas and, and the feeling that you were going down, you know, to the bottom of the sea in the hydrolator was pulled off so well, you know, I mean, they were, all these pavilions are just amazing. Yeah. I, I mean, know? they absolutely were. And I don't, I, I,
1: I grapple with the idea that, you know, they've, they've just become lesser versions of themselves because, you know, mm-hmm. in some ways they have, but uh, I, like, Anyone saying that Kitchen Cabaret or Food Rocks is superior to Soren, even Soren around the world, I mean that's that's not well. They're different. That's apples and oranges. They are, but in in terms of, I just mean in terms of like what has come after. Like in in some instances, yes, Mission Space I do believe is an inferior attraction to Horizons, even though Horizons was becoming outdated. And we we could, you know, go blue in the face talking about uh, Journey into Imagination and the problems that it's had. And, you know, while Test Track, Test Track wasn't as intricate as World of Motion, I don't necessarily see the first version as as big of a step down because it was still telling a story unlike the current iteration of Test Track we have. So, uh, and... Uh, you know, is, as much of a scope as there was with, with Universe of Energy and Ellen's Energy Adventure, I think that Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind is going to be kind of a callback in terms of this bigger and in broader, uh, you know, Epcot future world style attraction, just, just in a more thrilling way. So I, I, it, but. I, I'm also not certain with that. That's how I feel as of today. And then tomorrow I'll tell you that future world or whatever it's called now world of discovery is one big giant mess and it all needs to be bulldozed. And <laughs> only the original version was, was good. It it really just depends on, on what day and what feelings I'm currently thinking about. Mm-hmm. it. But I, you know, it's nothing's ever going to be perfect, but I try to think of it now as if, if anything was to leave now is is it a big of loss as it was the first time something replaced it and you know it's
0: it's not always just black and white mhm i agree with you yeah and you know th- these these pavilions were ones that i enjoyed they were my favorites of my generation you know the and, and you say this all the time But for the upcoming generations, the pavilions that exist there now are going to be their favorites that they're going to look back with fondly. Very true. Yeah. So now let's take a look at the Trans Center, which today would mean something different, perhaps. But... um, this is short for Transportation Center. Um the So the Trans Center was a post-show area designed by General Motors and houses many exhibits and takes up most of the lower level of the pavilion. And it includes the following exhibits. First one that you encounter is Aerotest. And Aerotest focuses on aerodynamics and allows guests to see how a wind tunnel works and to design their own cars to test. Again, Craig, gee, Sounds familiar to you? (laughs) uh, You know, they
1: might have skipped a a generation with that one to an extent, but it sounds extremely
0: familiar. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And then there's Bird and the Robot. And this is an audio-animatronic vaudeville style show, and it stars a robotic car-manufacturing arm named Tiger and his agent, Bird. And Bird is a cigar-smoking toucan with a really heavy New York accent. Um, In the show, Bird is trying to get tiger into show business so tiger performs many tricks at bird's command for the audience like rolling over playing dead and fetching a donut to demonstrate the agility of the robotic arms of that era now after tiger fails to fetch the donut bird threatens to send tiger back to gm where he would have to work at hard jobs like spray painting or welding hot car parts together And then a video display in the background shows other car manufacturing robots working in GM plants. And the finale is Tiger conducting the Detroit Phil Robotic Orchestra, which was a series of clips of car manufacturing robots set to um, classical music. And there's sort of a tribute to them at Disneyland's Utopia. I I was going to ask if
1: that's... Yeah, I, w- I was going to ask if that's where it came from because that's, uh, you know, I, I actually do wait in line for, um, for Autopia just because I love, I love the ride path in Disneyland and, mm-hmm. and the uniqueness of it. And the one time Kylie and I got in line for it and it was way longer than <laughs> it was posted as. So we got to watch a lot of the pre-show video and every time, uh, every time Bird came on, and Bird and all that, it was like that became this running thing with us. So I, I've always wondered if that was kind of if a tribute or an indirect, not exact sequel or what it was.
0: No, it is a tribute. When it was first, um, when they redesigned Atopia and Bird and Robot were introduced. Uh, now, of course, they're not a robotic arm, it's actually a robot yeah, in Atopia osmo- and the two can. Yeah. yeah. Asimov, whatever his name is, something like that. And the, and robot, the, the bird is a little robot bird. Yeah. But yeah, they said this was a, a tribute back to, um, world of motion. Wow. The Imagineer said that. That's cool. So yes, which probably a lot of Disneyland people had no idea what they were talking about. But, uh, but it's cute because not only are they in, um, yeah, some of the pre show, but they're along the ride path as you yeah. drive. Also in little scenes. So, all right. And then there is the Water Engine Theater. This this one uh, is entertaining as well. Uh, the Water Engine Theater is a small circular theater that holds a film presentation viewed on a series of side-by-side video screens. The Water Engine was an animated film about different types of engines. And in the film, characters debate which engines are the best. So a cowboy believes that the internal combustion engine is best, unless something better comes along. Other characters argue for other engines, such as the battery electric, the uh, coal-fired turbine, the flywheel, the hybrid flywheel turbine, the magnetic levitation, the hybrid turbine electric, and the horse. Um, The final engine depicted is a hydrogen-powered water engine, and after being pumped up, the water engine explodes all over the other video screens. And these video screens are all right next to each other, and they actually sort of Interact with each other in a sense that one character will reach over and grab something out from the other screen. And also like Cirque du Soleil does in that drawn the life in that one segment. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yep. Um in the in the end, of course, what engine do you think wins out? The internal combustion engine <laughs> wins out to be the best. So uh, not too much of a surprise there. No, no. No. <laughs> Okay, then there, the next one you came across Concept Two Thousand, and this was also known as Design Two Thousand, and it was an exhibit featuring the design of the future car. And there are displays about seats, seat belts, upholstery, power systems, microprocessors, and computer aided design or CAD, and and all. That was all new, you know, sort of to the public at this time. And CAD, of course, was a program used to design futuristic vehicles. And the exhibit includes a full-sized seating butt, which had an electronic dashboard superimposed over the windshield, um, with the gauges ghost-imaged across the windshield. So there's no need for the driver to take his eyes off the road. Sort of reminds me of modern Star Trek, where all their panels are like that. I think that would just be distracting. I think it would be hard for your eyes to focus on something like that. I don't know. (laughs) Since I've not experienced that. Also, part of the display was a film clip showing what a car manufacturing plant would look like in the future, complete with industrial robots and uniformed workers. So. Then this transitions to the Dreamers Workshop. And a Dreamers Workshop contains futuristic vehicles as well as futuristic car sketches and models. Two of the most prominent vehicles that are highlighted are the Aero 2000. And this is a sleek silver subcompact car displayed on a red turntable. It has four seats and two doors. It Contained in the Aero 2000 is an experimental three-cylinder turbocharged 68-horsepower diesel engine. And the sleek design of the Aero 2000 led to minimal wind resistance. And the front wheels are covered by shields, also called skirts, to prevent resistance. The shields only open when a turn of 10 degrees or more is made. Also part of the sleek design are voice-activated handleless doors. Voice commands also play a role inside the vehicle. The car itself can speak, hear, and see. And the brakes can see because they are radar-activated. And a satellite link-up is inside the car along with video displays. And the displays are on the dashboard. It can give the driver a rear view along with a route map. And the map can pinpoint the car's position on the route. So, of course, all of this is standard now, a lot of this. Yeah. But um cutting edge at the time. Yeah. The the other vehicle is called the Lean Machine, and the Lean Machine is a three-wheeled subcompact vehicle that has elements of both a car and a motorcycle. So it's designed for navigating congested streets within big cities and eliminated wasting passenger space. So the Lean Machine is only three feet wide and ten feet two inches long and four feet high. So Craig, I don't think you you would you would find this too comfortable. No, not <laughs> not
1: really. You know, yeah. maybe if I was a little bit younger and I could flex into a better
0: position, but not anymore. Maybe that 7-year-old who rode World of Motion might yeah. fit into this. Uh, probably. Probably. Yeah. The cockpit is made of fiberglass and can withstand all weather. So not only lean in size, drivers can also lean the lean machine by using the pedal operating tilting capacity to lean the vehicle around corners similar to a motorcycle. So the lean machine is composed of a lower part and an upper part. So when a driver leans into a turn, the upper part with the driver rotates horizontally whilst the lower part of the wheels remain upright. So, a look at the interior shows that the steering wheel brakes and throttle controls found in a standard car have been replaced with handlebars, which control all the steering functions. So, so much for, like, sipping your coffee and all that as you drive (laughs) along there. Dangerous, anyways. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) The vehicle has an automatic transmission linked to a liquid cooling rear mounted 38 horsepower engine, and the lean machine can accelerate to 60 miles per hour in seven seconds. And due to its, due in part to its low wind resistance, less than one fifth that of a motorcycle, the lean machine can travel 200 miles per one gallon of gas. So that would come in handy today. That would. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then there's the section that's concept to reality. And this is located by the pavilion's exit. So concept to reality was GM showroom for current cars and trucks for guests to explore. And so GM said that in just one month, the vehicles on display endured seven to ten years of wear and tear. And that this provided GM with valuable data on how guests use their vehicles and which components wore out the fastest. So World of Motion was an Epcot Center opening day attraction. First, I should ask, Craig, when you were seven, do you remember – um, experiencing any of these post-show attractions?
1: No, I don't. But I'll be honest: we were very much uh, go 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 to attractions. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, you know, I would have looked at them as we walked past, but we wouldn't have any. We wouldn't have spent any time. The only pavilion where we spent time in a post-show technically was Journey into Imagination.
0: That's what I thought. That was great for youngsters. Yeah. With the original one, it was two floors.
1: Exactly. I you know, between that, yeah. the rainbow tunnel and you know, it's it, Making music and mm-hmm. the uh, giant—not I—I never knew what to call it—but the pins where you put your yes. hand under and mm-hmm. you can see it. Like that's that's the stuff we went for.
0: Mm-hmm. We uh, we we had something that used to be in a Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco, and it was called the Exploratorium. It's since moved to another location, I think, a Fisherman's Wharf, and it um, it had a lot of those same types of attractions and um in it. So that was always fun to go into that. Of course yeah. it's gone pretty much now. So <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, like I said, World of Motion was an Epcot Center opening day attraction. It experienced operational problems such as the ride system starting and stopping repeatedly throughout the day. The narration also dropped in and out of the ride vehicles mid-sentence. But these operational issues are quickly resolved and World of Motion became one of the most popular attractions In the park. However, some of the pavilion reviews were harsh. A 1983 review in the Chicago Sun-Times said, Terminal cuteness afflicts this ride-through transportation show. Very young children may be slightly amused. (laughs) They rated it one out of four stars, meaning it was an easily missed attraction. So, Mm. they were always hard on everything. Yeah. Um, As other future world attractions debuted, attendance for World of Motion began to decline. In 1992, GM's original 10-year sponsorship contract ended, but GM didn't want to pull out of Epcot Center, but had serious concerns about World of Motion, so they continued their sponsorship on a year-to-year basis until a final decision was made. And a decision was made, and World of Motion closed in 1996, when Disney and GM agreed to the construction of a new attraction, Test Track, which celebrated the future of General Motors and their automobiles. So the closing of World of Motion was the end of an era of large Disney attractions featuring audio animatronics. Horizons was only open seasonally after General Electric dropped its sponsorship, Craft had dropped its sponsorship of the land in 1993 with Nestle taking over. Universe of Energy would soon be transformed to Ellen's Energy Adventure. And in a few years, Kodak would leave the Imagination Pavilion and MetLife would leave Wonders of Life Pavilion, resulting in it being shut down. With refurbishments and replacements, attraction ride times would be shortened. Slow-moving rides would be replaced by faster-moving rides. It was also the beginning of the shift in focus of Future World from a singular theme of futurism, innovation, and industry to mixed themes with a less cohesive message. World of Motion was scheduled to close forever on January second, 1996, and General Motors executives attended to take the final ride. Midway through the last ride ever, World of Motion broke down, and the GM executives on board had to climb out and walk back to the loading area on foot. An ironic finale for an attraction based on transportation, and perhaps an ominous foretelling of things to come with the construction of Test Track, which we will discuss in our next installment of the History of Epcot series. And now it's time for This Week in Disney History. (laughs) Okay, hey, Craig is. Oh, I never remember. This was <laughs> it, you. It's me. <laughs> I was thinking yeah. that, but I was not sure. Okay, well, I chose February twenty third, nineteen thirty nine, as mine because this is the date. Since we're in Oscar season now, I suppose um, Walt Disney received. The special Oscar for his classic 83 minute animated film Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs at the 11th Academy Awards held at the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles, California. And of course, we all know this is when 11 year old child star Shirley Temple presented Walt with one statuette and seven miniature statuettes for a significant screen innovation, which has charmed millions and pioneered a great new entertainment field for the motion picture cartoon. And it was film director Frank Capra who came up with the idea of a full-sized Oscar statuette with seven smaller ones descending in a row. And this is just this is the photo that, you know, it seems like every Oscar season, this is a photo that will be released yeah. by every Disney entity out there. And of course, you can view this, um, the, the actual Oscar in, uh, at the Walt Disney Family Museum in the lobby. So you don't even have to pay admission. You could just walk into the lobby for free and see many of Walt's awards. And there's, I remember Diane Disney Miller talking about this, you know, there was just like this warehouse, a storage room or whatever it was that was just filled with boxes after they sort of shut down Retlaw, Law. And they went in and just started digging through stuff. And they just found, you know, Walt's awards just all wrapped up in newspaper. And they were just stunned when they came across this uh, this Oscar. Because Walt really like didn't display things and all that so some were displayed in his office of course when you walk down the hallway towards it there was a display case but um otherwise things were just put away and so they were stunned when they found this just wrapped in newspaper you know in a box yeah. <laughs> so so it's great that it's available for viewing um also this academy awards is the, is a um awarded at this was a Disney RKO short, Ferdinand the Bull. It received best short subject cartoon. Uh, it beat out four other animated shorts, including Walt's own Brave Little Taylor cartoon. And this was the first Academy Awards show without any official hosts in the last few years. That has um, been routine. Although I think there's hosts this year. For the Academy uh, Awards. There are. They said, mm-hmm. we will. Uh,
1: we we know that we haven't had hosts, so we'll triple down and have three hosts this year instead. Oh, I had no idea there were three. So. Uh, yeah. Uh, Amy Schumer,
0: Regina mm-hmm. Hall, and I can't remember the last one. I feel terrible. See, and Regina Hall wasn't one of the names I heard. I heard Amy Schumer and someone else. And I don't remember the Wanda someone sucks. else either. So... So that's so that is mine. So, Craig, what what interesting history tidbit did you choose for this week?
1: Uh, mine's not nearly as important as yours, but uh, it's an important date in my Disney history. Uh, on February twentieth of nineteen ninety six, uh, Roseanne started taking her trip to Walt Disney World. <laughs> I saw this, yeah, yeah. and. <laughs> it's it's honestly not worth mentioning this episode because if you haven't ever watched the arc of roseanne going to walt disney world it was it was a two-parter much like most of them were i think boy meets world only did one episode but all the rest of the sitcoms were doing two episodes with it at least Mm -hmm. full house did and family matters and step by step uh but uh, this one the first one it's named we're going to Walt Disney World, but absolutely has like nothing to do with it. It's all about the <laughs> build up of the fact that they they find out that they're actually going. You know, they have extra money and they want to use that on a trip to Walt Disney World. And um and so the first half is just the setup of them going to Walt Disney World. And then the second half of the episode is the plane ride there. So in an episode entitled We're Going to Walt Disney World, they don't spend a single second in Walt Disney World. But in that it kind of showcases, you know, the issues that some people would have traveling. Like when they're on the plane, they're all in different areas and passing around the baby and just <laughs> you know, normal normal people's problems of mm-hmm. having to travel anywhere and you know so it's not the most exciting there's there's some funny moments in the episode uh you know little throwaway jokes like the two beckys it was going back and forth uh, oh that's right in college and then yeah and then sarah chalky and they make like uh sarah chalk got to be part of this series the the walt disney world episode arc and so they like make a like on the nose reference like oh aren't you glad that you're here this week (laughs) (laughs) so it it's it has its moments but you know that obviously is the first one that then sets up in the next couple weeks the next one is their experience at walt disney world which is is not to be missed i mean (laughs) it's one of the best uh walt disney world episodes that any tv show did um mm-hmm. i feel like if you can't watch it and see yourself in one of the characters then i don't know who you are as a person you know with, with full house it's the it's the ultra rich experience so we're staying at the grand floridian and everything we get to be a princess for the day and everything is just given to us uh but with with this one it's it's more like the you know that dan gets to epcot or gets to magic kingdom and finds out that there's no beer and immediately bails and goes straight to epcot and (laughs) little little things like that and you know at one point in time i think it's the grandma's throwing popcorn on the ground to test the custodial people at Magic Kingdom to see if they're really as good at keeping the park clean as everyone talks about and and little things like that. But my favorite, my favorite is the unofficial third episode that then came after the, the two Disney World episodes where they get back to Illinois and the episode Springtime for David. And it is a show about how like uh, David, the Johnny Galecki character, um, mm-hmm. he... He had such a great time at Disney World and was feeling so, so high off of that, that trip that then he comes back to Illinois and wants to get a job at the local theme park that is, um, that is, you know, it, it's supposed to be like a local version of Disney World, but instead of Mickey Mouse, they have Hans the Hare. And it's very <laughs> like, it's very Germanic in that name. And like, it goes through the whole process of their form of traditions in which they're all brainwashed to, to be, to fully serve the entire theme park. Edelweiss gardens, I think is the name of it. And, you know, it's, it, there are all these rules you have to follow when being Hans the hare And it's like, it is the most, it's the most, it just met a way of ripping at Disney World so after ABC being acquired by um, by by Disney and you know becoming part of that family and then putting all these sitcoms through it then they had to find their way to kind of stick it back to Disney and that's what they did so uh, a great three-episode arc altogether. I highly recommend it, whether whether or not you like Roseanne or any of the people in the show or that. I think as a Disney fan, it's worth watching.
0: One of my, I loved it when Modern Family went to. I think they went to Disneyland. They did, and oh gosh. My favorite scene, Gloria, because, you know, she always wore those really spiky heels. high heels. <laughs> and I don't know what happened. She breaks a heel or something. And so um, who is her husband? What was her husband's name? Um, oh, I can hear her saying it. I can't remember, though. But anyway, um, Jay. I think he bought Jay. Jay. Yeah. Yeah. And and he buys her the Donald Duck slippers. Yeah. <laughs> and she walks so she goes, Oh, Oh, it's like walking on clouds. And then her whole personality changes. Yeah. And everybody realizes the reason she's so irritable all the time is it's her shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought that was so funny. And then and then one of the daughters turns out her ex boyfriend's a Dapper Dan. And he ends up getting fired from Disney uh, for his antics, trying to win her back and all that. And so, because he dresses as a character, and then I think he gets in fights with another character or something. I don't know. It was crazy, but it was hilarious. So. No, it, it's a good one too, you know, because yeah, they yeah. there was so
1: many years without doing a special that when it came back around, you know, it, there was a lot of expectations for it. But ultimately, I think I think it holds up. Maybe maybe not as well as the '90s ones, but it was mm-hmm. sitcoms were just different back then.
0: Mm-hmm. So they were yeah, very it, for much so.
1: for what it was, though. It's it's
0: fantastic. I love watching that one too. I was sure you were going to choose one because I was going through the week. It was the anniversary of the whole totally Minnie when she did her, uh, her, the, your favorite video, Minnie and Elton John. <laughs> I was, sh- I almost chose it. But, I was um,
1: close to it, but I felt like that was what we talked about last year when we were right around this time. <laughs> so I don't want to just keep giving the same thing to people over and over
0: again. Yeah, no, yeah, but oh, but that, that's classic. I'll have to watch it on that day. But anyway, well, I saw a uh, a couple of movies after not seeing movies for a while. I went to two movies this past oh. weekend. Just I had no time for anything else, but I and these are two under the Disney umbrella. Let's say I saw Death on the Nile because I'm a big Agatha Christie fan, and um, I would say, you know, if you haven't already seen it, just wait till it's streaming. Oh. <laughs> it's my advice for you. Um, I bet the soundtrack is really good because it, there's a lot of blues music in it, and. Um, And I like blues and jazz and all that, so I definitely want to listen to the soundtrack. I'm sure it's on Apple Music or something. And it's visually, it's very nice, except for the Egypt CG um, that they did, because I think to keep costs down, they um, they didn't actually go to Egypt. No, but the only problem they changed some things, they added some characters. So the only problem, my only problem, wasn't. And I don't think it's because I'm a good sleuth like Hercule Poirot or Miss Marple or any of the other Agatha Christie characters, Tommy and Tuppence or anything. But I guessed it. I figured it out. Um, pretty much halfway through, hmm. I knew who did it and I knew how. And yeah, I thought this I, doesn't bode well. <laughs> yeah. So then I'm the rest the of book. the yeah. The rest, well, don't worry; it's not going to spoil the movie for you. <laughs> so, yeah, but um, the book is good. The book is good. Yeah, I, I was kind um, of wondering uh, just because,
1: like, I know i I had a couple conversations with some people, and <laughs> they were mentioning names, and like. I don't recognize that from what I've read so far, and I've read a decent amount, so yeah. I'm I'm a little confused. So I uh, I'm going. I still don't want to have anything necessarily spoiled for me until I finish mm-hmm. it, and then then I'll see it. But you know, I also I I I don't have high expectations for it. Like I I saw murder on the orient express before i watched the original movie or i read the book and i was underwhelmed by it and then once i read the book i was like oh my gosh this this painted just such a bigger vivid picture Mm -hmm. than the movie did and then i watched the 74 movie with um albert finney Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was like oh my gosh this was how this should have been done and it yeah. was already done, so it didn't need to be done again. Chris-
0: but Agatha Christie actually saw that version before she passed and liked it, so that does say something about that yeah. film.
1: I thought mm-hmm. I thought that was good, and not not to take anything away from Kenneth Branagh, a fantastic actor and director. But oh, yeah. I, you know, sometimes passion projects aren't necessarily the. They're they're not going to hit the most, but if it's reopening it all to audiences who, you know, have kind of forgotten about Agatha Christie, mm-hmm. you know, if, if 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 we if we have to keep sitting through Kenneth Branagh movies that he does a Poirot or
0: you know oh, Ryan Johnson taking more. knives out, mm-hmm. then keep mm-hmm. keep going with it. Keep going absolutely, it. I agree. And um, the, and the other thing too is is that you know they padded it. Like, Agatha Christie did not like to, she liked to keep her characters rather mysterious, so she didn't tell a lot of their backstory. Like, we really don't know how Poirot got to be uh the world's most, uh, the world's best detective, or how Miss Marple, the little old lady, somehow was able to solve all these crimes and all that. Um They gave him a backstory in this. That, and, and a, and a post story in this that is not in the books. And I thought, well, okay, fine. But, you know, I wasn't a big fan of it. So it takes a while to, for you to even get on that ship <laughs> before, because they have so much going into it. But anyway, so it's worth seeing. But I would say, you know, as much as I, I know we need to get back into the theaters and support you know, the studios and all that. Um, I don't know. I think this one is, you know, if wait till it's streaming, in my opinion, although I'm glad I saw it on the screen, but anyway. And then I finally saw Spider-Man, No Way Home. Good. was my other one. And I enjoyed it. Some of it made no sense, but I thought, okay, this is a Marvel film. Why am I trying to have it make sense? But I really enjoyed it. So, uh, it was fun. Well, gosh, it was fun with all the multiverse aspects of it. I don't want to give it away in case people haven't seen it yet. But it was fun seeing just um, everything that got pulled in because of the multiverse yeah. and the interactions and all it, that. But it, it was just a ton of fun. That's it. was. That's it. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, it it was. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And um and it's definitely the end of a chapter introducing a new chapter. Yes. In that too. So, and there's some sad moments in this where like I was moved, you know, a couple yep, of me times. Too. Yeah,
1: even yeah. even the second time I saw it, I was still, it still still got me. That's yeah. It's so, a good movie.
0: It is. It is. I was really impressed with it and no wonder it's breaking box office records i mean it's really well deserved and tom holland did a good job we'll see how he does an uncharted this coming week
1: yeah i started to read reviews and it said uh, not very good but that's not that necessarily him but just the movie's not very good
0: one review they started out by saying Tom Holland fans will enjoy this film, and then I thought, oh, okay, this this is not a good sign <laughs> if that's how you're starting your review. <laughs> so. I, I did
1: not play the game, and I know nothing about it, but it it, it just does not look interesting to me. <laughs> but yeah. maybe it'll be well,
0: good. see, I I like the you know the those swashbuckling adventure Indiana Jones style films if they're carried off well. So, you know, I really want this to be like that and I, I want it to be good. Cause I, those are just fun films. You can just sit back and just sort of let the story carry off, you know? Yeah. So. And you know,
1: it's as long as it's fun, I guess that's mm-hmm. all that matters, but something about it, just even the previews just look like there's nothing plausible about this. It looks just, not even like the CGI is very good with it, and mm-hmm. so you know I'm still going to go see it, regardless. It'll just be how how badly do I want to pull out my phone? And I I won't. I'll never pull out my phone in a theater unless it's an emergency. But I'll be sitting there thinking about that versus the movie
0: itself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I I'll see how it depends how the reviews are. So, but like like you know I didn't see Jungle Cruise in the theater and. um that ended up being a fun film, and I had very low expectations for it. And I ended up enjoying it. And I'm thinking, well, you know, if it's as good as Jungle Cruise, I'll be okay with that. Yeah. You know, so. And and I had, Jungle Cruise to me, it's just, you know, there's some movies where you just go in and it's just a fun experience and a reason to eat popcorn. <laughs> so, you know, that's just how I look at some films. Death on the Nile is sort of that way. It's sort of like that. So, anyway. But if you want to see some good Poirot films, if you have access to the, the old series that I think it was on PBS for a while, but it was that Poirot series. Um, they really well done. Uh, and, uh, and they do Death on the Nile. They do Murder on the Orient Express. And it's like, it's a television series, but each episode is like an hour and a half. So they're like, they're mini movies all of them, and they're pretty faithful to the books. Yeah, so, I, I believe um,
1: it's still on PBS, uh, on like their streaming service, or it, it might be from time to time, but I know I've <laughs> seen them available to stream.
0: Yeah, it's on BritBox. I subscribe to that, because I watch that's probably the streaming service I watch the most these days. That and Paramount+, Plus because of Star Trek. and um, But uh, but yeah, so if you want to catch some good Poirot on there and they have Miss Marple on there as well. Those are terrific too. So on there. Anyway. So Well, I used several references for this episode, a couple of books that I used, the Epcot Explorers Encyclopedia, A Guide to Walt Disney World's Greatest Theme Park by R.A. Peterson, and Walt Disney's Epcot Center, Creating the New World of Tomorrow, with text by Richard R. Beard. The, The fun thing about this book, both of these books, I think, are out of print, but fun thing about this book, the Epcot Center, Creating the New World of Tomorrow, is it was written before Epcot Center was built. So um, and so and it's a Disney publication. And so it um, ev- all the photos in there are either concept art or photos of the attraction being built. So it's so it, it's really interesting. so in there. And then some websites and articles I referenced. Um, Lost Epcot World of Motion and uh, Widen Your World, World of Motion, The Tomorrow Society, It's Fun to Be Free, A Tribute to World of Motion, and Theme Park Tourist History uh, in Motion, Part 1, Epcot's legendary lost masterpiece, World of Motion. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners
1: connect with you? As always, you can find me on the shows. I'm out on the DisUnplugged podcast network, You can find me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster, and you can email me, Craig, at WDWinfo.com. What about you, Michael?
0: You can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael bowling Walt. Instagram and Michael BowlingtheDiz and you can connect with both me and Craig on Twitter at ConnectingWalt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio is Imagineers in Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at disunplug.com and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible so thank you for making us a part of your day and remember i only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that it was all started by a man walt disney and his brother roy